1 Corinthians 11, the way the Holy Spirit has put the scriptures together, pretty much everything that we need uh, to look at here this morning is in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12. So we will spend the majority of our time here and hopefully not have to flip to too many other passages of scripture. We're looking at uh, the question of how believers gather together as one body. Um, and I'm just going to jump right into our study today because we have a good bit of ground to cover and uh, we don't want to be too long uh, with an introduction. Be looking at the Lord's Supper today. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a visible ordinance. By ordinance, we mean something that Christ has ordained for his people to do. And it is visible in the sense that we do it externally. It's not something that we do in our heart. We don't observe the Lord's Supper in our heart. We do it with our hands and our mouths and our eyes and our feet. We do it with bread and the cup. It is a visible ordinance like baptism. It occurs publicly. It occurs visibly. It's something that we do. But the ordinance itself is not the main thing. It isn't that Jesus Christ wants us to look really hard at the bread and the cup that we hold in our hands as though those were the center of what we were doing. It is rather that in the bread and the cup, he wants us to see something beyond them. He wants us to see something far greater, something far more real than a piece of bread or a cup of juice. He wants us to see something that is invisible to us. The bread and the cup are emblems of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there are four directions that the Lord's Supper calls us to look. Because it is a visible ordinance, something that we do with our eyes, something that we see with our eyes, when we see it, when we perform the act of eating the bread and drinking the cup, the Lord is calling us to look in four different directions. We're going to look at those together and then we will look at the end at the implications of what the Lord's Supper means for a local church. The first direction that the Lord's Supper beckons us to look is backward. The Lord's Supper calls us to look back in time. Most of us are aware of the normal procedure for the Lord's Supper, bread, juice, eating, drinking, we're aware of the normal procedure and pretty much all churches go through the same procedure when they observe the Lord's Supper. And the reason for that is because Jesus Christ himself gave us the procedure. He told us exactly how to do it. And let's read that now in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper looks back to the night in which Jesus was betrayed. You see that uh, in verse 23. The first Lord's Supper was celebrated that night. And Paul exhorts us here to do it just as Jesus did it on that occasion. And that's why all churches pretty much do it the same. 
because we are following the procedure that Christ initiated on that first Lord's Supper. And in that first Lord's Supper, the procedure that Christ himself followed would have been familiar. They were celebrating the Passover meal. That night, it was a meal that looked back to God's act to deliver Israel from Egypt. It was a time to remember when God's death-dealing angel passed over the land of Egypt and actually passed over Israel's dwelling so that death did not fall upon them and instead it landed on the homes of the Egyptians. Why did God pass over Israel's dwellings? It was because the blood of a lamb had been applied to the doors of their home. And ever after, whenever Israel celebrated the Passover, they were always looking backward, backward in time to that time when God delivered them. The Passover was always a looking back to God's act of deliverance. And the bread and the cup of the Passover meal was something the host would hold. He would break the bread, the unleavened bread, and he would distribute it to the family. And that's exactly what Christ is doing when he institutes the Lord's Supper. He takes bread, he breaks it, he distributes it to them. He takes the cup of wine and he has a sip himself and passes it around and says, all of you drink from it. There wouldn't have been a lot that was unfamiliar to the disciples in that procedure. But here, Christ does change some things a bit. Here, he says that the bread is his own body. Here, he says that the cup is his own blood. The bread is broken because his body will be broken, he says. His blood will be poured out just as the fruit of the vine has been poured out. And so both the bread and the cup point us back to Jesus, God's Passover lamb. They point us back to remember him. In the Lord's Supper, we look backwards. It is a time to remember the death of Christ. We do it all in remembrance of him. And there are two things we can put together in our looking back at the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is, first of all, a memorial. We eat it to remember. But it's also a memorial that we act out. We actually do things. It's more than just what goes on in our heads. We might remember the founding of Australia in our heads, but we don't do anything when we remember that. But in the Lord's Supper and remembering the death of Christ, we actually do something to remember that, to memorialize it. It is a memorial that is enacted, an enacted memorial. I saw an advertisement this past week for the reenactment of a medieval battle at some museum up in Caboolture. They were putting this on. Um, now that you know about that, are you planning to go and take part? I'm not particularly interested in that. And I imagine there'll be some history buffs who'll be there and probably lots of kids who want to just enjoy the excitement. But most of us really aren't concerned to be part of that enactment, that reenactment of that medieval battle from 500 years ago. And the reason for that is we weren't there at that battle and it doesn't really mean anything to us. But imagine you're living in another country under the reign of evil men who have sought your life. You don't even feel safe enough to go to sleep at night because you are afraid they will find you. Imagine living under the oppression and reign of terror and death of that for 40 years. And then an invading army topples that evil, evil government and brings in a reign, not of terror, but a reign of peace and life. But in the process of 
that army's invasion, the chief commander of the army is killed. He pours out his lifeblood and his body is mutilated to bring about the deliverance of your country from the reign and terror of evil. And the year after his heroic sacrifice, the country calls you to reenact and remember the death of that hero who set you free and gave you your life back. Would you participate in that reenactment? You probably would because it's something that touches your life very deeply and very personally. It wouldn't just be a, bit, a boring bit of historical drama. The Lord's Supper beckons us to look backward to the event that set us free. It is the reenactment of the breaking of the body of Christ, the pouring out of his blood for us. And the Lord's Supper calls us to look backwards and to remember. But there's another element to this memorial. The Lord's Supper beckons us not only to look backward, it also beckons us to look upward. That is that we eat the bread and drink the cup. In the breaking of the bread and the pouring out of the drink, all of that symbolizes what took place in AD 33. That was when his body was broken. That was when his blood was poured out. But we go beyond merely celebrating what happened back there. We actually eat the bread and drink the cup. Why do we do that? The bread is broken, the wine is poured out so that we may partake of them. This partaking, though, is in the shape of a meal because meals sustain our physical life. They fill our hum hungry stomachs. This meal, the eating of physical bread and the drinking of the physical cup is an enacted memorial of the death of Christ, which we regard to be the source of our spiritual life. This meal beckons us to look backward to remember the death of Christ and to partake then of the bread and the cup to show that this historical event, what happened back there, is what keeps me alive today. It is what sustains me today and I partake of it today. It is our spiritual meat and our spiritual drink. It is the source of our ongoing life. The historical event that we are remembering and dramatizing was for us and we symbolize that by partaking personally of the bread and the cup. In the Lord's Supper we reenact the shedding of blood and that breaking of his body as the source and spring of our new life that we continue to enjoy in Christ. And this brings us to the second place that we look at the Lord's Supper, and that is we look not only backward, but we look upward. The Savior died, but the benefits of his death remain on the plate and in the cup until I partake of them myself. They do not fill me and satisfy me until... I reach out my hand to partake, to drink the cup myself. The bread is broken, the cup is poured out, but then in the Lord's Supper it is offered to every individual. And every individual must respond to that offering by reaching forth his hand to partake. The hand that reaches forth to partake is the hand of faith. We have reached out in faith to Christ and received him by faith. And now he is our spiritual meat and our spiritual drink. And in the Lord's Supper, we re-dramatize that. 
The bread is broken. It is offered. And I once again reach out in an act of faith to receive it. And in that, we not only look backwards in the Lord's Supper, but we look upward. We look upward to the one who shed his blood for us. We look upward once again with a renewed faith in him. We dramatize in an act not only his death, but also my faith in receiving him as we reach out our hands to receive the bread and the cup. We dramatize our need for him. We reach out as hungry sinners to receive the bread of life to satisfy our souls. And in reaching out for this bread, we have turned away from all others. We reach out for this bread. We receive it by faith because it alone is able to satisfy our souls. And the heart that drives the hand to reach out for this bread in the Lord's Supper is a heart of repentance and faith. So internally, I have reached out by faith for Christ and he has satisfied my soul. And I make that visible and public. I dramatize that in the Lord's Supper as I myself partake of the bread that symbolizes his body and the cup that symbolizes his blood. And so the Lord's Supper beckons us to look upward again in faith to Jesus Christ for our salvation. We dramatize our ongoing faith in him as the source and spring of our life. We are making that repentance and faith visible as we reenact this memorial. And this is what Christ meant when he told his disciples that the cup, verse 25, was the new covenant in my blood. Covenants are agreements between two parties where one party promises the other to pour out upon him certain benefits. The covenants are typically in Scripture enacted in blood by which the one party promises to pay with his life's blood if he does not give the promised benefits to the other party. And this is what Christ is saying to us when we reenact the pouring out of his blood. He is saying, by pouring out my blood, I am committing myself to you to provide for you all the benefits that I have promised to you in the gospel. The new covenant promises benefits such as forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit to give life to our bodies. It promises a restored relationship with God. And Jesus tells his disciples that these promises are theirs and he seals that to them by the symbolic pouring out of his blood. He seals those promises to them, just as we might say, a person seals his word in blood. Jesus does that for his disciples. And thus, in the Lord's Supper, as we reenact the pouring out of his blood, we hear in that, we hear Christ recommitting himself to us to provide those benefits of redemption to us. We break the bread and we pour out the cup to remember his pouring out of his blood for us. And he told us that his pouring it out was his seal of the new covenant to us. And when we reenact that, we reenact Jesus' own commitment to bring us the benefits of his death, the benefits of the new covenant. And so in the Lord's Supper, we hear Christ reaffirming his covenant to us once again. But the new covenant and all the benefits that Christ offers to us in the gospel, 
they are received by faith. I must believe to become a participant in all of those benefits. And so in the Lord's Supper, not only do we pour out the cup to symbolize Christ's commitment to us, but we also, with our hands, reach out to take part in that benefit. We believe in Jesus Christ and we demonstrate that by reaching out to partake. In other words, Christ is committing himself to us by the pouring out of the blood and we are committing ourselves to him. We are reaching out in faith to him as the one source and spring of our spiritual life. And thus, we do what we do in the Lord's Supper, looking upward to Christ into his very eye as he looks into ours. And it's a gaze of mutual recommitment. It's a gaze of mutual love. And so the Lord's Supper beckons us to look upward to our Lord, to hear him reaffirm his love and commitment and promises to us. And to bring, uh, his promises to us to bring us the benefits of his death, but it is also our reaffirming to him our commitment to him, our love for him our trust in him and in him alone for those benefits. It is our fellowshipping with Christ. The third direction that the Lord's Supper beckons us to look is it beckons us to look around. Not only do we look back, not only do we look upward to our Lord today and fellowship with him, but this understanding of the Lord's Supper that we look upward to him brings us right up to the brink of the next place we are to look at the Lord's Supper. If the Lord's Supper is a recommitment of myself to Christ and a recommitment of himself to me, then the Lord's Supper dramatizes the faith and love that unites me to Christ. And in making visible that union with Christ, we find that the Lord's Supper creates a visible union with Christ's people. It is what joins us to one another. And we began to look at this last week in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17. And I'm sure that some of you have had the opportunity to meditate on these verses. But let's read 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14 through 22. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I write as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In this chapter, Paul's answering a question about whether or not Christians should eat meat offered to idols. And in these verses, verse 14, Paul is urging them to flee from idolatry. And he uses three different scenarios to show 
the principle that eating makes one a participant in whatever context that meal is eaten in. If you eat at my family table, we consider you part of the family by the very fact that you are eating with us. And that's what Paul is trying to show in these verses. His ultimate point is to show us that eating meat offered to idols makes you a participant in that idolatry. And he concludes then in verse 21 that we cannot participate in the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons at the same time. You're either eating at the Lord's table and participating in that, or you're eating at the table of demons and participating in idolatry. And Paul says we cannot do both. But how does Paul make his point that eating meat offered to idols makes one a participant in idolatry? Well, Paul uses Israel's sacrificial system and the Lord's table to make that point. Notice what he says in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. Those who eat the sacrifices, Paul says, they're participating in the altar. What does he mean by that? Well, by eating those sacrifices that are offered up to God, God receiving, as it were, a portion of them through the flames of that fire, but the worshiper also eating a part of that animal. What was happening? What effect did the eating of that sacrifice have? And the answer was it joined the worshiper to that sacrifice and to the altar so that the benefits of the altar and the sacrifice became his. He was cleansed of his sins. He was restored to a relationship with God. And how did that participation happen? By eating. By eating the sacrifice, Paul says. And Paul says also, look with me at the Lord's Supper, verse 15. What happens when we eat at the Lord's table? The answer is that that act of eating is a participation. Verse 16 says that the cup and the bread are a participation in the body and the blood of Christ. This is essentially the same thing as what was true of those Israelite sacrifices. By eating, they were receiving the benefits of the sacrifice. By partaking of the body and blood of Christ symbolically, we symbolize our receiving of those things and receiving the benefits of them. That Christ's sacrifice actually fills us up and satisfies our souls as hungry sinners. But, Paul says, more happens than just that we are united to the Lord in that. That's what verse 16 says. By eating and drinking, we share in the body and the blood of Christ. But verse 17 says that that common eating unites us not only to the Lord, but unites us to one another. Look at verse 17. Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In verse 16, Paul's speaking about individual Christians who eat the Lord's Supper. That act of eating brings them into participation with the Lord. It brings them into a renewed fellowship with Him as they hear His promises and partake with a renewed faith. That's what we saw in our last point. The Lord's Supper calls us to look upward. It reunites our fellowship with Christ. But... If all of us are partaking then of one loaf, what does that mean about all of us? We are one body. That participation in Christ creates a common participation between all those who eat. And Paul assumes then that the Corinthian believers understand this 
And so he doesn't really elaborate on what he means here. He's kind of using this principle to make his point about idolatry, but he's not really elaborating on the Lord's Supper here. But nevertheless, he does give us this principle that common eating together is what unites us together. When we all partake of one loaf, we are all joined together as one body. And that is what we have been seeking to understand, I think since last week at least, and probably since before that. How does a group of believers cross the line from not a church to now one body in Christ? Invisibly, that happens by the work of the Holy Spirit to join us to the invisible body of Christ. But what about the visible body of Christ, the local church? And here Paul gives us an answer as to how we cross that line. The Lord's Supper, when received with faith in Christ, is a recommitment and a reuniting of our souls to Him. But it is also a picturing of our being joined to Christ, and that gives us a visible picture of the process by which we have been joined together into one body. We have all partaken of one loaf for our spiritual life. And that partaking of that one loaf has brought us into relationship with one head. So that now in the invisible world, we are one body in Christ Jesus. And when we reenact that invisible process in the visible world with visible bread and a visible cup, that visible act creates the visible body of Christ. As we all partake of one bread, we become one body. Now, as I pointed out last week, this verse is typically understood to say that the reason we use one loaf at the Lord's table is because we're already one body. We're one body, so how can we depict that we're one body? Well, let's use one loaf, but that's actually backwards to what Paul says in the verse. He says it's the one loaf that creates the one body. Because there's one loaf, now you're one body, is what he says to us here. And if we get those back to front, his argument about idolatry and eating meat offered to idols doesn't work. It would go something like this. Because you are an idolater, you eat in the idol's temple. Whereas Paul means to say, because you eat in the idol's temple, you participate in idolatry. And so we don't want to get those two back to front because if we do, the implications of that are quite serious. So look with me at verse 17. What is the one body that he's talking about? Is that the invisible one body or is that the visible one body? Well, let's see. Verse 17. Think about that one body as the universal body of Christ, all Christians. Because you eat the Lord's Supper, you become part of the invisible body of Christ. Is that the way it works? Partake of the Lord's Supper and you become a Christian. No. The one body in verse 17 cannot be referring to the universal church. It's got to be referring to the local church. And so by partaking of one loaf, that's how local churches are born. That's how they are joined together in one body. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we saw that baptism is the line we cross as new believers from the we all to the one body. In 1 Corinthians 10, 17, we see that the Lord's Supper is the line that we cross from the we who are many to the one body. Because there is one loaf, the we who are many become one body. Because there is one loaf. We all partake of the one bread, Paul says. Now that is true in both the invisible and the visible realms. The Spirit's work to baptize us 
in Christ, in the invisible realm, is what adds us to the invisible body of Christ. The visible act of water baptism is what adds us to the visible body of Christ. Our invisible partaking of Christ in repentance and faith in the spiritual world, that is what adds us to his body. And that same act depicted visibly now in the Lord's Supper, the visible ordinance of the Lord's Supper is what creates the visible body of Christ, the one body. And so that's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. 27. When he speaks of eating the bread or the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner or unworthily, that person will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Many times Christians read this verse and have even been taught that this means I must come to the Lord's Supper worthy of partaking of it. I must, see, must never come to the Lord's Supper as an unworthy sinner. To do so might mean sickness or death for me. And so if I've sinned this past week, I don't partake. But that's not what Paul's saying in verse 27. And in fact, that idea is completely opposite of the gospel that idea of making myself worthy so that i can partake of the lord's supper is completely contrary to the gospel the gospel that we portray in the lord's supper is a gospel for sinners it is the offering of the body and blood of christ to sinners that they might receive it and have spiritual life and so what is paul talking about in verse 27 by eating the lord's supper drinking the cup in an unworthy manner He's not saying that the people who come to the Lord's Supper are unworthy and that they've got to make themselves worthy before they come. Instead, he's talking about exactly what it says there, eating or drinking in an unworthy manner. It's not that the people are unworthy. It's that the way that they do it is unworthy. Their act is unworthy. In other words, the act of partaking of the Lord's Supper must be worthy. It must match the realities that we are trying to display. It must be fitting. In Corinth, there was a lot of disunity, a lot of self-centeredness, a lot of self-pleasing that was going on at the Lord's Supper. And such disunity denied the reality the Supper was trying to portray. And so Paul even says in verse 20, look, because of the way that you're partaking of the Lord's Supper, you're not even partaking of the Lord's Supper. I mean, you're doing the thing. You're eating the bread and drinking the cup, but it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating together. The Lord's Supper is something that brings us together in unity and you're all about your own personal preferences and all about your own personal satisfaction and the rich are eating in their own rooms and having their own supper before the poor can even get there. And Paul says, this is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating, even though you're going through the act. You have got to eat and drink in a way that is worthy of the realities that you are trying to portray in that act. Such, such disunity denies the reality that the supper portrays. And so we come as unworthy sinners to receive the supper, but we do not come cherishing sin. That would be a denial of what the Lord's Supper is trying to portray. We cannot come to the Lord's Supper while maintaining disunity in the body. Both of those deny the realities that we picture in the Lord's Supper. And there are dire consequences for that false portrayal of the gospel. The Lord's Supper then beckons us to look around, to rightly discern the body that we create visibly as we partake, to understand and properly depict the unity that this ordinance creates, the unity of one body. 
And finally, the Lord's Supper beckons us to look forward. There's more than one, there is one more place the Lord's Supper beckons us to look. Listen to these scriptures. On the night before Christ's crucifixion, he says, For I tell you, I will not eat of this supper again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And in 1 Corinthians 11, you can see this in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here we are confronted with the fact that the Lord's Supper is actually just a shadow of something far greater. In the Lord's Supper, we remember and celebrate the death of Christ. We look in faith once again to the one who has promised us the benefits of the gospel and of his death. We look around at the visible body that the Lord's Supper creates, but none of these things are actually the fullness. His death for me so that I will not die, and yet we do die. My body is daily decaying. I look up in the Lord's Supper for communion and fellowship with Him, and then I go out and I sin, and I destroy that fellowship once again. It's broken day by day because of my sin. The Lord's Supper creates the body of Christ, but it's only us, it's not everybody. The whole body of Christ has not been gathered yet. We celebrate it as five or 15 or 500 believers, but that's not really the Lord's Supper when we all gather around the Lord's table. When will the benefits of Christ's redemption become mine fully and finally? When will I no longer die? When will my communion with Christ My looking up to him in faith and love. When will that never be broken? When will the body of Christ actually be gathered around the table of the heavenly father? The Lord's Supper in calling us to look in these three directions actually is calling us to look in only one direction ultimately. It's calling us to look forward to that time when all of these things, the benefits of Christ's redemption become ours fully and finally and irrevocably. And so we partake And proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper calls us to look forward to the time when in the kingdom we will sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob around the table of the Heavenly Father. It calls us to anticipate the marriage supper of the Lamb when he enters into the joy of full union with his bride and their communion will be unbroken and unsullied ever by sin. It calls us to expect the ingathering of all the saints when the entire body of Christ gathers It calls us to look forward to the completion of God's work to construct a body for his son. It calls us to look forward to the coming of Christ for his bride. It calls us to look forward to the descent of the new Jerusalem in which God dwells with his people forever. It calls us to look forward to the joy of the eternal kingdom and the unending life in the presence of God that Christ has died to purchase for us. Revelation 21, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. They live now in the same house. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. The Lord's Supper calls us to memorialize the sacrifice of the Lamb of God to bring us to glory. And so we want to look now at our implications of the Lord's Supper for us in our current situation. And there were eight of them for baptism, and I shaved it down to six for the Lord's Supper. We'll go through these together. Okay? The first thing is that the Lord's Supper and baptism, both of them as ordinances, visible ordinances, they both enact the gospel. And in doing that, the Lord's Supper and baptism make the gospel visible. They make the death and the burial of Christ visible again today for any person who, will, who looks on. That his body was broken and his blood was shed. They make visible our or the offering of his blood to needy sinners. The ordinances make visible the response of needy sinners to receive. They actually even make visible the satisfying effects of Christ's work for us because our stomachs go away a little less empty. I wish there was some way that we could fill ourselves completely and feel the fullness that Christ's redemption has brought for us. This means that the ordinances are not self-interpreting. If you walked into a church and saw them baptizing somebody and you had no idea what was going on, you'd be like, what in the world is going on? And that's why the ordinances in the church are always accompanied by the preaching of the word of God. The gospel is proclaimed. Jesus Christ is offered to sinners. And then they baptize people and they observe the Lord's Supper to show how all of this works. To show that receiving Christ as he's offered in the gospel actually satisfies the soul just as the bread satisfies the body. And so the ordinances must never be, never be uh, enacted without also the proclamation of the gospel. Thus the gospel is the means whereby the Lord gathers his people together into the age of the spirit, the age of life, the body of Christ. But all of that takes place invisibly. God desires a people, a body who is visible. He wants this new human race to be visible upon earth. How does that happen? The invisible effects of the gospel become visible and the body of Christ becomes visible through the visible enactment of the gospel, through the ordinances. Baptism makes internal repentance and faith visible and the Lord's Supper does as well. So baptism and the Lord's Supper make the gospel visible. Secondly, the Lord's Supper binds many into one. It's exactly what 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says. By the partaking of one loaf, we who are many are one body now in Christ. The Lord's Supper binds many into one. We saw with baptism that baptism takes a single new believer and joins him to the body of Christ. But where'd that body of Christ come from? That body of Christ, that local church is many believers, but how do they become one? By the partaking of one loaf, by the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper then is what makes a church a church. It is when five believers become a church. The Lord's Supper then locates the center of our unity in Christ. What, 
What brings five believers together into one body? Partaking of Christ, receiving His benefits, faith in Him. That's why believers get into local churches, and that's why unbelievers don't, because that is the gospel that we are depicting. It's possible for a bunch of believers to come together, but not to be a church. But when they begin to publicly display the work of Christ to unite them together in one body invisibly, when they display that visibly, then the visible body of Christ becomes public, invisible. Third, partaking of the Lord's Supper is a public commitment to Christ and to His people. Just as baptism is. Faith and repentance is committing yourself to Jesus Christ as your Lord. And that faith and repentance is made visible in the Lord's Supper as I reach out my hand to partake, once again, visibly of Christ in His benefits. And so in reaching out my hand to partake, I am visibly, publicly committing myself to Christ and His people once again. And that's why, I just want to show you a little connection here. Hopefully this is helpful for you. Chapter 10, verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Now, you know what we've seen about one body in 1 Corinthians 12. Why in the world does this one body exist? Why does Christ give us the Lord's Supper so that we may gather together visibly as one body? And the reason is because we need each other. The Spirit gives us gifts in the one body so that we can minister to one another and seek each other's mutual edification and growth. How do we come together in this? The Lord's Supper. And so the Lord's Supper is what defines the group of believers that I'm responsible for. Who needs me? All the people who I celebrate the Lord's Supper with. And in celebrating the Lord's Supper with them, I'm actually saying, I want to be one body with you. And let's gather together and help each other grow in Christ. And this is the reason why traditionally Baptist churches have had what's called a church covenant. A church covenant is basically a document that lists out all the one another commands. And a church covenant is when everybody comes together and says, Oh, Jesus wants us to fulfill these one another commands towards one another. Let's all do that. Let's commit ourselves to doing this to one another in this body. And typically, Baptist churches have read their church covenant. This is what we must do. And then they've partaken of the Lord's Supper in order to say, we're going to do it. We are going to commit ourselves once again for another week or two or however often you observe the Lord's Supper. We're going to commit ourselves once again to one another to fulfill the one body commands, the one another commands that Christ intends for us to fulfill towards one another. And so the fourth implication then is, the Lord's Supper defines the extent of our responsibilities as members of the body. Who do you have a responsibility to fulfill the one another commands to? Answer, whoever you partake of the Lord's Supper with. And the Lord's Supper is pretty limited, right? You can't partake of the Lord's Supper over Zoom or FaceTime. You can't partake of the Lord's Supper with that YouTube preacher that you can sit and watch on your couch, and that's on purpose. Because if you can't partake of the Lord's Supper with him, how are you going to fulfill the one another commands towards him? We've got to be together and the Lord's Supper makes it a local visible church for the purpose of fulfilling those one another commands towards one another. 
So number five, who the, who the church admits then to the Lord's table is a decision of the entire church body. If the Lord's Supper is a public commitment to each other, then that commitment has got to be mutual. In other words, who are we going to let into the group? Well, only believers, right? And if their partaking of the Lord's Supper with you actually is a commitment to each other to fulfill the one another commands, to recognize each other as members of this local body, then that mutual commitment has got to be mutual. In other words, you can't just walk in the door, oh, I think I'll just have the Lord's Supper here today, and I think I'll have it over here tomorrow. We've got to gather together as one body around the Lord's Supper. We have got to be careful who we admit to the Lord's table, and we have got to admit only those with whom we are prepared to enter into covenant. And we want them in partaking of the Lord's Supper to know by partaking of the Lord's Supper, I'm entering into covenant with this group of believers to fulfill the one another commands to them. And so number six, the Lord's Supper then draws a line clearly between the church and the world. I think Siri wanted to say something to us. The Lord's Supper draws the line clearly between the church and the world. It defines the boundaries of the church. How do you know who's a member of that church? Who's partaking of the Lord's Supper? In other words, that group of people gathered around that table have responsibilities to one another. And you could draw a line around them. And that line is drawn where the gospel draws it. Who's inside? Repenters and believers. Who's outside? People who don't repent and people who don't believe. The gospel then that the Lord's Supper makes clear and visible shows who's part of the body of Christ, who's part of the age of the Spirit, who is receiving the nourishment and the benefits of Christ's redemption, who hopes to partake of eternal life, who has the Spirit within them to raise them up from the dead, who is a part of the Father's family, and who is not. In other words, the Lord's Supper is the best means of guarding the purity of the church. The fastest way to doctrinal error and an unhealthy church is to just open the doors wide open to anybody who wants to come in and be part of this local body of Christ. But where care is shown to commit ourselves only to those who we know to be believers, who we have reasonable cause to suspect she's a believer. Okay, I'll enter into covenant with her and let's work on each other and help each other grow. Where we do that, then that community of believers is safe from the false doctrine and from the influence of unbelievers on the outside. And so we ought never admit to the Lord's table those who, do not, those who we do not know to be true believers in Jesus Christ. And when we find out that there's one in our midst who's not genuinely a repenter, how would we know that? They don't repent. When we find out that there's one in our midst who is not genuinely a repenter, that's why churches have typically called that process of removing them excommunication, excommunion. They're not part of the communion anymore. They're not part of the Lord's Supper anymore because they don't demonstrate themselves to be a genuine repenter and a genuine follower of Christ. And so we don't keep up that relationship with them because we can't fulfill the one another commands towards an unbeliever and we don't expect him to fulfill them towards me. 
This is the Lord's Supper. There are four directions that it calls us to look. We look backward to Christ's sacrifice. We dramatize that. We look upward to him every time we gather and celebrate the Lord's Supper. We see his blood poured out again. And in that, he recommits himself to the new covenant and all of its benefits for us. We look around at our brothers and sisters with whom we are one body because we partake of one loaf. And we look forward to the day when Christ returns. And so, Lord willing, uh, I'm going to be in Adelaide next week, but I think it would be healthy for us to consider one another's profession of faith in Christ at some point and to make a judgment as to whether or not we want to gather together as one body, whether or not we want to commit ourselves to fulfilling the one another commands towards each other, whether or not we want to seek each other's edification and growth, whether or not we do want to fellowship together as a visible local church. And then how would we cross that line from a Bible study to a church? How would we cross that line? We would enact that covenant to Christ and to one another through the partaking of the Lord's Supper. And then we who are many are now one body in Christ with all of the responsibilities that one body in Christ bears towards each other. So Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we can start thinking about that. But uh, in order to do that, we've got to be prepared to commit ourselves to one another as true believers. So that can be a topic of conversation, can't it? How did you come to the Lord? What's God doing in your life? Is he genuinely at work in this person's life? Are they repenting of sin? Are they following Christ? And I don't think any of us have any reason to believe that any of the others of us are not. But uh, we want to be sure of that before we commit ourselves together. So, well, let's pray and then see. We have just a couple minutes if there's any questions, okay? Lord God, thank you for making clear to us uh, once again what the nature of the church is. We are the family of the Heavenly Father. We have been made your children because of Christ, his broken body and his shed blood. And you give us the privilege of gathering together to show the effects of the gospel, that it creates a family, a people for God's name, a bride for the Son, and it creates a body of members that need one another who contribute to each other's spiritual growth and edification. And Lord, I pray you'd give us the joy of entering in together into this commitment to Christ and to one another. And that we would be able together to put the gospel on display for all who look on and that we might be able to help one another to grow up into Christ who is our head, to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to call one another to greater dependence on the Lord, to deliver each other from sin when we fall. And I pray, Father, that you would give us uh, the joy of that soon. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, any questions at all? Yeah, when you, when you look at uh, Acts chapter 8, uh, is it Acts 8? No, it's not, sorry. I'll have to look. I think it's Acts 18, sorry. Uh, Paul goes to one of the churches that he's planted, and they celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Why? Because they're 
part of the one body in Christ. And uh, in doing that, uh, Paul, they're, they're not holding him at arm's length. And so typically what Baptist churches have done is what's called visiting communion. So if you go to another city, you're staying in a hotel for three days, you go to the Baptist church on Sunday, they have the Lord's Supper. Typically, if you went back 200 years, the Baptist church would say, come on. Yeah, we'd love to have you. If you are a member of another good gospel preaching church, we'd love to have you be part of ours for a day. Um, the question is, can you partake of the Lord's Supper long term with a group of believers and not recognize that you're actually committing yourself to them? In other words, Spurgeon would let somebody partake of the Lord's Supper for, I think his rule was six weeks. They partook of it every Sunday night. So for six weeks, sure, partake of the Lord's Supper. But at that point, if you're not prepared to commit yourself to this body of Christ, and you're not prepared to submit yourself to that commitment that the Lord's Supper embodies, then we're going to say, look, you've you got to find a church where you can commit yourself. Um, because when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're committing ourselves to one another, and we want you to be part of that. And if you don't want to be part of that, we'll find a place where you can be part of it. We want you to be a part of it somewhere, rather than just being a free-floating Christian. Um, so the Lord's Supper, you know, the Lord's Supper today that doesn't recognize this body aspect, the Lord's Supper today that's celebrated merely as my own closed eyes, personal devotion with Jesus, and I have no idea that there's other believers around me who are also partaking. When we miss that, we actually have kind of a Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper. Why would I partake of this? Well, God's doing something really special for me, you know, by partaking of this, he, we're just having a good spiritual experience here. And it actually, the Lord's Supper then becomes the means of God pouring out his grace upon me. And Baptists are not real comfortable with that. We do not receive God's saving grace by partaking of bread and wine. We receive it by faith. Um, and there is that aspect of remembering the death of Christ and my having fellowship with him. But I have fellowship with him as a member of the body. And so we cannot leave that part behind. That's what Roman Catholicism tends to miss. So, I think you had a question, Kim. That was my question. That was yours, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, you're, if you're going into it with that kind of understanding of the Lord's Supper, then as a visitor at a church, you wouldn't want to be just kind of pop in, hear some preaching, and sing yeah. and pop out kind yep. of visitor. Right. You would want to be a... Yeah. I'm here to be part of the body yep. of Christ. Yep. Yep. I'm more meant like, for example, if I go up to my parents. And yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I know what yeah. you were thinking. Yeah. I was just thinking of like times you know, traveling and, you know, well, can't not be at church on Sundays because right. I'm a Christian. But right. it gives you a different perspective. Yeah. 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 And it also shows that the gospel that is preached by the pastor on Sunday, as people respond to that, what does it do? Well, as the Lord's Supper is offered and I reach out and receive that by faith, what does that do? Well, it gives me eternal life, yes, but it also joins me to the body of Christ. And there's a reason why our salvation is shaped that way. And the public visible reenacting of that has also got to follow that shape. Otherwise, we kind of skew the gospel, and I think that's one reason why. There's a lot of uh, individualism today in Christianity like I'm my own Christian and nobody else has anything to do with my relationship with God. Well, actually, you're part of the body of Christ and you can't say you don't need other believers. Because Paul said you do. That's why he put us together in the same body. We don't exist as Christians on our own. And the Lord's Supper is supposed to make that perfectly clear to everybody who partakes. 
Any other questions? No? Yeah, just in regards to um, not partaking unworthily. Yeah. Because like I was taught that you do not partake if you've got sin in your life. Yep. Yeah. So to me, that concept is strange. Different, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, different, yeah. The question is, is what I am doing visibly reflecting invisible realities? So the invisible reality is a sinner comes to Christ and says, I need this. But that faith is also a repentance from sin, right? I'm turning away from all of this. I've been living my life for how many years trying to please myself and find blessing in life, turning away from all of that, turning to Christ in faith now. Okay, so that's the invisible reality. So what about somebody who comes into the Lord's Supper and they're involved in sin and they won't repent? Does that depict the invisible reality? No, they would be partaking of it in, in, in an unworthy manner. They would be doing something visibly externally that's not really true. When I come to Christ, I come as an unworthy sinner, but I come leaving all my baggage behind. And I come to be joined to Christ and to one body. I can't come and say, yeah, I think I'm going to be a Christian, but I don't want to have anything to do with other believers. Paul, John says, if you don't love the brothers, you don't have the love of God in you. Yeah. you know, so if I'm going to come to the Lord's Supper and be at odds with every other person in the church, in partaking of the Lord's Supper, which makes visible an invisible spiritual union, I'm actually partaking of that in the wrong way. So do I come as an unworthy sinner? I do, but I come as an unworthy repentant sinner. Yeah. You know, if I am harboring sin in my heart and I'm like, I'm not turning loose of this. I'm planning tomorrow to go out and I'm going to do it again. Um, and nobody's going to tell me what to do. Uh, you can't come and partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner like that. Yeah. Um, I think where that kind of understanding leads people is, oh, I sinned this week. I'm not going to partake of the Lord's Supper. Yeah. No, the answer isn't to not partake of the Lord's Supper. The answer is repent of your sin, confess it, get rid of it, and then partake. Yeah. The Lord's Supper is for sinners. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right, You're exactly. Like, no, that's actually why you need to yep. become a Christian. Yeah. Think of coming to the Lord's Supper the way you came to Christ. Yeah. You came to Christ with plenty of sin, but you weren't holding on to it and loving yeah. it. You're yeah. ready to get rid of it. You repented. Yep. Anything else? Yes, Ami. That's a good question, yeah. yeah. What do you think? Someone who has not taken the first step of public commitment to Jesus Christ and to his people in baptism. Uh, you know, the analogy I like to think about it, baptism's the front door and the Lord's Supper's the family table. Can we let somebody in the fam on, around the family table who refuses to come in the front door? Um, and I think, I think the scripture is probably pretty clear that um, at least everything that we see in the scripture gives us reason to think that you've got to publicly commit yourself to Jesus Christ before you're allowed in. Um, and 
that actually is the definition of what a Baptist church is in part. Um, Roman Catholicism says anybody who wants to can come in. You're not really being part of the Roman Catholic Church. We're just pouring out grace, kind of like you turn the tap on, you know, and the water comes out. And anybody who wants to can come in and have it. Whereas a Baptist church says, no, 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 God's grace is poured out upon his repentant people. It's poured out upon people who are part of Christ's body through Christ. And so for that reason, it's only those who have become part of Christ's body who are allowed to have the benefits that Christ offers in his body. Um, And so if they have not been baptized to depict that beginning of life in the body of Christ, then we don't admit them to have the ongoing benefits of the family meal uh, in the body of Christ. So, yeah, good question. That actually is a question that's under discussion today in Baptist churches around the world. Um, And the reason for that is because faith, again, is privatized. Like, I know I'm a Christian. Who are you to say that I've got to be baptized to be part of your, your church? I know my own heart. And the New Testament calls us to actually follow Christ's path. Be baptized, and then obey all the things he's commanded. And that includes living in the body of Christ. So, yeah. yeah, what we've looked at this morning and the last few weeks is what Baptists have believed since their beginning around 1500 all the way up to about 1900. And then in 1900, there was quite a radical shift as we, it's actually very well documented um, how Baptist church leaders, liberal Baptist church leaders who believed a liberal theology about human beings, they actually tried to change these things and they did so that the Lord's Supper just became about me and God and I could just have my own personal communion with God and nobody would ever call me to account. Nobody would ever call me to turn away from sin and I could breeze in and out of churches and go wherever I wanted and be my own person essentially and live my own life completely apart from the body of Christ. And so there is a healthy, up, healthy um, push today to recover these things and I think it's a good thing. But I think, having said that, I think a lot of, a lot of what we have grown up with, um, we have been part of the, some of those streams of, of change I think it's, it's important for us to come back. All right, what does the Bible say? Let's do it this way. Um, and it gives us a whole different view of the Christian life, doesn't it? You, know, you view the Christian life through this lens and you get a little bit of a better idea of what it means to be a Christian. You know? um, if the other way um, does not tend towards a Christ-centered Christian life. It does not tend towards a Holy Spirit dependent on the body of Christ sort of a Christian life. Um, And that, according to Paul, is a problem.